1: Hey everybody, welcome to Business of Design Podcast. This is episode 28, and we are going to be talking with a great friend, Bruce Phelps. You may remember him from episode 23, You Are a Brand, Whether You Like It or Not, and this is part two.
0: Welcome to the Business of Design Podcast with Kimberly Selden. brought to you by Business of Design, a coaching community for independent designers like you. We all know design matters. A Business of Design, we think designers matter too. Hey
1: Cheryl, I hope you have something fun for us today. What do you got?
0: Well, hopefully we've got something in the works. We've had a lot of designers inquiring about going to High Point with you. What do you think about planning a trip there? I think it's coming up in April. Yeah, oh, oh my gosh,
1: you know what it is? It's April 14th to 18th. Uh, 2018. And we did have a conversation about taking a group there. So for people who've never been, for people who aren't sure how to navigate the market, it's huge. You can do so much sourcing when you're there. And of course, tons of networking. We are talking about doing a business of design trip. So you put uh, details as we have them up on the website. Is that right, Cheryl?
0: yeah we'll we'll definitely get that up there um, as we start to plan around it. but if you are interested, um, we are going to try and start getting a list together, so feel free to email me cheryl c h e r y l at businessofdesign.com and we'll get you on the list and make sure you get the information as we plan it So fun, so
1: fun. We'll do some work, we'll do some learning, we'll have some fun, we'll drink some wine. hey i think I think I want to go on this trip. <laughs>
0: And and it would be a business expense. Yay! I Maybe love not it. the wine, but the rest <laughs> of it.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right. If we can only write that off. Oh dear. Thanks, Cheryl.
0: Okay. Talk to you soon.
1: Bruce is a 30-year veteran of branded marketing, and he's an award-winning author. I mentioned Consumer Republic last time, which is a book that really helped change my thinking about branding. There is a link to the book on our website. Definitely check it out. Bruce describes himself as an optimist with experience. I love that because I feel that perhaps that describes me too. Bruce is co-founder of Heuristic, a boutique consultancy that helps new and transitioning brands find profit and purpose. And he runs that company, of course, with his partner, Lyndon Cordemanche. I definitely wanted Bruce to come back because I had some follow-up questions after the first interview, and in particular, I wanted to go a little bit deeper into this idea of imposter syndrome. It startled me a little to discover that I'm not the only one who wakes up some days and thinks, why would anyone hire me? Um, Not a good thought to have, and certainly not a fact that is reflected in the calls that come into my office and the experience of working with the repeat clients that I have. But nonetheless, there it is, I have it. So I'm going to ask Bruce about that. And I'll get follow up on some of the other questions I wanted to know more about. But I really got thinking after the second conversation about a few of the turning points, I would say, in my own maturity as a business owner. Those moments where I could see that I had begun to take myself seriously. So for example, I was thinking about the time that I sent my contract via email to a potential customer and back then we used to send a Word doc and I sent it to the customer and it was returned to me with multiple changes throughout and I remember looking at this contract that had been changed and initially having a little read through and then Next, having the thought that, wait a minute, this is my contract. This is the contract that you sign if you want to work with me. I'm not hiring you. You're hiring me. And between the two of us, I have more experience running a design firm than you do, so I'm gonna stick with my contract. And so our response to that customer is wow, thank you. Uh, That was an interesting exercise. We should have sent you the contract in a PDF form. It is not open for negotiation. These are the rules that we've put in place because we know how to run a successful design project. And he turned around and signed the contract as is. But it did give me some insights into some of the things he was worried about might happen. So we had some conversations around that. And I think uh, going forward, we might even have amended our contract just a little bit to address some of those concerns. Because at the end of the day, I want that contract to be signed without hesitation, without reservation. And that means it has to be so clear to customers that they have no fear about signing it. I also have noticed that I no longer will engage in negotiating my fees. Now, that can happen in a straightforward manner. You're how much an hour? I think that's really high compared to other designers. And the answer is, this is what we charge. We know our value. Uh, This is our business model. Get on board if you want to work with us. Great. And it can also happen, when I, which I find a little bit trickier when the client says something like, but I've already paid you so much. I thought we were done with billable hours now, and I've learned to be very clear and very firm about the fact that we will be charging billable hours through the end of the project. And it doesn't matter if it's an hourly fee contract or a flat fee project. Uh, uh, In both cases, we will be charging for our hours up to and including the end of the project. And then the most recent evidence that I have finally come into my own and f- i finally taking myself as seriously as I want to be taken by clients uh, is twofold. Number one, I'm in a position where I'm able to choose my clients. And thankfully, that was something that Bruce and Lyndon brought up when they decided to approach rebranding Kimberly Selden Design Group, which they're currently doing right now, they brought up the fact that I should be in a position at this point in my career to be able to choose the clients I want to work with and that message should be broadcasted on my website. So we all agreed that's a great idea. I love that thought. And then I've noticed also that I will now select clients not just based on whether or not I think I'm going to love the client, which is important, But I'll also base that decision on whether or not I think I can photograph the project at the end because the reality is I only have so many more projects I want to do in my life and I'm at a point where I can pick and choose. So why not choose those projects that are going to allow me to take great photographs, put those on my website and sit back and at the end of the day, be able to really be excited and proud of the work that I've done. So that's kind of a new barometer. And again, I think that points directly to the fact That I'm taking myself very seriously as a business owner. And I don't for a minute think I could have done that when I first stepped into the game, you know, in my late 20s. So don't judge yourself if you're not there yet, but maybe you are there. Maybe you're close to that, or maybe you're willing to just take a risk and step up into something that's a little bit scary, but a little bit exciting. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode, and I was particularly happy with his takeaways, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about each one of them. But after every podcast on the website, if you look at the show, the episode number, you'll see that we kind of highlight the best takeaways there for you. So if they mention uh, an app that they love or they mention a website that they love or something or other that's going to make your project life so much better. We'll put that right on our website. So make sure you you go to businessofdesign.com. Check out what's there in the section under each episode. This is episode 28, You Are a Brand, Whether You Like It or Not, part two. Bruce Philp, you came back. That was so nice of you.
2: I think you, you were a bit coercive about that, actually. You made me come back.
1: <laughs> you think waiting in front of your driveway was too much? <laughs>
2: That's a bit aggressive. but <laughs> You know, you can't be successful without being aggressive.
1: Exactly. Okay. Well, we just had more to talk about. That's the thing. You were amazing in your first podcast, and now I have some more follow-up questions, which I think you knew was coming. <laughs> but one thing that got me thinking, you suggested a one-person retreat, with enough bottles of wine to get you through it, which if I have wine, the retreat's over. I'm just happy I'm not going to get the work (laughs) done. But you did that as a way of um, getting us to deep dive a little bit into those three things you said were important for brand, which are purpose positioning and character, right? right. Yeah. Okay. So that was the last episode. That's what we talked about. And you're all going to go back and listen to part one if you want to hear that. I want to talk a little bit more about something you touched on in, in that episode as well. And we didn't have time, which was imposter syndrome. Right. Start there.
2: Right. So everybody probably knows what imposter syndrome is, the the belief that whatever job you're doing, you're actually not equal to it and you're a fraud and no one's just found you out yet, but they're gonna and that'll be terrible. And I think everybody suffers from that to some extent, but I think creative people have a special – they live in a special kind of imposter syndrome hell because uh, unlike a normal job, he said, making quotation marks with his fingers – Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know you can 't you can 't be a creative person just by working hard you have to have talent and so so we believe that we have this muse and um this muse is the one who you know gives us our ideas that will allow us to make a living and 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 we don 't feel like we have complete control over that thing right so it's kind of like um, you know owning a cat; like you're never really sure <laughs> if, if it's going to be there in the morning. Um, so, so you know, creative people tend to kind of deal with this. And do you want me to talk a little bit about how to how to cope with that? Or?
1: Yes, please.
2: Yeah. So, so, so just you know, just to kind of to restate that, we, everyone who works in a creative industry has this problem, and if they don't, they're probably psychopaths. And um, and and the the challenge of making it through decades of of a career like that lies in how you manage it.
1: So wait, so so just right there, it doesn't matter if you've been doing it a while. It's not going to disappear. No. So if you're new and you're feeling it, you can't console yourself with this is going to de- disappear after I have a few clients. No. And if you're if you've received all kinds of awards and accolades and it creeps up, it doesn't mean you're broken. It's just part of how we are.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I don't personally think it ever goes away. In fact, in, in in speaking for myself, if I woke up one morning and didn't think uh, the work I was doing was challenging in some way, if I if I wasn't somewhat afraid of failing at it or being discovered to, uh, you know, be a fraud, I would start to worry that maybe I shouldn't be doing this anymore.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. Go on. Now now fix me. I mean right. <laughs> I mean tell us what we can do.
2: <laughs> well, so I think the the first thing is to accept that this is how it is and um and you know, kind of make friends with it. Um I think you have to view this as a sort of superpower. So it, it it's the thing that keeps you honest and, and, and motivates you. Um and and you, you deal with it that way as a kind of companion um that drives you. And the, with creative people in my industry, I've found that um, they tend to drift in one of two directions. They, they, they either become less curious over time or they become more curious over time. And the people who become more curious are the ones who survive imposter syndrome the best. So what I mean by that is that they, they make a point of always putting things in. Um, always filling their brain with new, fresh stuff. And I think you do this by traveling. Um, I do it by uh, reading and by trying to be an avid student of pop culture. And I just try to keep pouring stuff into my brain. Um, And so this has three benefits that... um, that I think uh, help imposter syndrome a lot, one is that it that it, it keeps you stimulated and I think if you're you know if your mind is active and you're you know you 're kind of seeing new exciting things uh, that you haven 't seen before and you 're seeing what work other people are doing and people who are better than you are, it just it, it distracts you from the that little black devil that's um, that 's telling you you 're not up to the job um, I think secondly it keeps your work fresh, and that 's a good antidote for um, for imposter syndrome, and the third is that it it kind of helps you always be the smartest person in the room. So if you kind of just know things, if you can refer to the work of others or, or make references to other Things in popular culture that are relevant to what you're doing, you know, your client is going to feel like you must be an expert, um, and the feeling that you're an expert kind of reflects back at you and, and gives you confidence. This is a far, even though it's more work, it's a far happier place to dwell than the people who just think that, um, you know, that their muse is lurking in there and 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 sort of you know praying that it comes out today for the meeting, um, and uh, and then you know kind of not knowing. <laughs> What's gonna happen? Uh, you know, when it, do you know what I mean? Is, is that's for she's feeling. hiding. She's
1: hiding. <laughs> that's right.
2: Come out, you oh devil! You I have nothing to say. <laughs> Pull a fire alarm. Yeah, so it, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like an obvious antidote to imposter syndrome, but but it really works for me, and and it's something that I've observed in others. Is just keep put pouring stuff into your brain, and um, and
1: and, and outside maybe your general realm, like you said, for me it's travel. Yeah, of course, there's lots of design when I travel, but just moving and going out and doing wine tastings and climbing rocks and yeah. things like that seems to help a lot. Yeah,
2: absolutely. There's the great great danger in taking your talent. And putting it under glass because you think it's fragile and has to be preserved. You, you need to, uh, you need to, to tend that garden.
1: Okay. And there's a difference then between the the feeling imposter syndrome and actually not knowing something, and then getting the right people to help you fix that problem. For right, like we talked last time about the fact that I thought I could just kind of design my own website because I'm good with design. So how hard could it be? It's right. color, it's font. Um, there's no, that's nothing to do with imposter syndrome. That's literally outside my wheelhouse.
2: Right. And I think that we have to be um, confident that we look like we know what we're doing when we know uh, that it's time to get help, if that makes sense. There's this wonderful quote, which I cannot uh, reproduce from memory, but from Samuel Johnson. Um, and he was the guy who talked about, <clears throat> you know, uh, people who prefer price over quality being the lawful prey of, you know, shysters. And anyway, it's that quote that they used to hang in Baskin-Robbins stores. <laughs> uh, <anyway. laughs> I was too busy looking for peanut <laughs> butter, right. fudge, whatever. What was that one? So he, he, said, uh, he said that knowledge is of two kinds. You either know a thing or you know you know where to go to find out about it. I, and he, he used more elegant language than that. But I really think that's true. And I think that when you're sitting across the table from a client and you say, I don't know how to solve this particular problem, but I know someone who does, um, you aren't giving up any power at all. You're giving them confidence.
1: That is so true, and that is something that's so hard to do when you're first starting out because when a client says, how many pot lights do I need? I think somehow I'm supposed to know when, in fact, I'm not an electrician and I'm not a lighting designer. Yeah. So there's no shame in saying, let me ask my electrician and lighting designer that question and get you a proper
2: answer. Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay, love that. I'm surprised that you didn't mention motorcycle time as your way to keep filling your curiosity bank because you have an awesome podcast, This Motorcycle Life, which I listen to. And I, it's actually made me want to ride a motorcycle, which is <laughs> crazy, because I don't really want to ride a motorcycle. So talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So when I go for rides, I sometimes will think. Um, but the thinking is very, um, it's very sort of freeform. I won't, I won't get on a bike and, and head out with the intention of solving a problem. I'll just let it, you know, kind of percolate away in there, but just as often, the benefit that it gives me is that um, it fills my head with something else. When, when you're riding, and there's lots of stuff in life that works this way, you know, skiing, horseback riding, there's lots of things that have this benefit. When you're riding a motorcycle, you have to generally be a hundred percent focused all the time on, on, on the present moment. And, um, you know, a couple of hours of that is extremely refreshing. You come back, uh, feeling empowered and feeling, you know, as if you've, your brain has just taken a, you know, fresh shower and toweled off. (laughs) Um, And and that's really therapeutic. And I I, kind of think it helps my work, but I can't prove it.
1: Yeah. I think for me, that's yoga for sure. I just empty my head no matter what I go into the studio with. I leave it on the mat. I come out and I'm just empty. So I think you do need to find some way of doing that for yourself sometimes. Yeah, I do too. We ended episode 23 with me saying that once uh, you guys rebuilt my business of design brand uh, and that actually created a bigger vision for myself, I grew into that brand. And I'm halfway through that experience with the Kimberly Seldon Design Group brand. I'm not there yet because we haven't finished yet, Mm -hmm. but I anticipate that's going to happen. Why does that happen? Why do you step up into a space that you create for yourself on paper or virtually?
2: Well, I think part of the answer lies in the fact that um, when 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 you are stepping up into a larger definition of yourself, it's usually a definition someone else has given you, um, and that might be a mentor, or a coach, or it could be a you know a, a branding consultant. Um, but when it comes from outside, you, you're more inclined to believe it. Uh, you know, almost none of us who have you know a healthy psyche truly is free of insecurities and doubts plus which we all tend to self-handicap, which means that, um, you know, or another expression that you'll hear sometimes is sandbagging, where, you know, we'll kind of act as though we're not very good hockey players, but actually we're amazing hockey players. And, you know, by by reducing everybody's expectations, we reduce the pressure on ourselves and then hopefully go out and surprise them with how awesome we are. But that's, a, you know, for a creative person, a little bit toxic. So you, you don't want to sandbag too much. The thing about someone else giving you... Um, uh, you know, a wardrobe to wear if you like, is that is that it feels more true because it's it's without all of your hang ups, right? And mm-hmm. and uh, so I think that's a little bit part of what you're talking about. We've had the experience, you know, of talking about your brand where you've you've in in the same moment been um a bit startled by what we've suggested to you, but at the same time it felt true. And that's uh that's the best kind of Uh, you know, that's the best kind of stepping up that you could possibly do, I think.
1: Yeah. 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 I know exactly what you're talking about because we are in the middle of doing the KSDG brand and you have written, I don't even know what you call it, but anyway, your presentation to me presented a very serious interior designer, or at least someone who's very serious about interior design. And I think of myself as being such a jokester and always having fun, but that really is not reflected in that brand. And when you said it, I thought, oh my God, I'm totally different person when I'm on the job. I am so focused and so driven and so serious.
2: Right. Right. And I think that, you know, in in your case, you should trust the fact that people who know you through the media, if they were to then someday work with you, would not be disappointed, but in fact, would be delighted that you are so kind of fun and sparkling and charming, you know, when that's appropriate. But when it's time to get to work, you're deadly serious and disciplined like that's good, not bad.
1: Yeah. Okay. But I I don't think I ever would have come to that conclusion if you hadn't pointed that out to me. And now I feel like I can kind of own it, which is great.
2: Well, I think that's I think that is uh, a real thing. Um, you know, th- there are a lot of people who react that way to getting a new suit or a new car or a you know uh, whatever particular kind of symbols of success that, you know speak to you. That if you buy just a little bit ahead of where you are. So it kind of, it's in the fake it till you make it kind of, um, you, you do feel the need to kind of occupy it and own it. And, and you know, and the truth is that, you know, to take your example, I mean, you may have felt that you had to grow into it, but from our perspective, that's who you are. You're the one that didn't think you were big enough for it. <laughs> we were quite confident that you were, and I suspect that, that that would be true of everybody listening to this podcast.
1: Well, yeah, it's it's interesting how you don't see yourself sometimes uh, as the world does see you. That's that's I, I'd never heard it put that way, imposter syndrome, but I bet a lot of people listening are going,
2: oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, creative people especially. I mean, we are the people who get up in the morning and look in the mirror, and we see that spot. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else can see it in the whole wide world, but we see it.
1: But we're sure other people can see it. Like, I'm positive. We're sure sure it's the size of a manhole cover. (laughs) You're going to hire me, are you sure?
2: Me? (laughs) Did you see this thing on my face? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. The other thing you did in the last episode, episode 23, you made a case for the fact that um, being a brand allows you to project a more complete image of yourself to clients and Mm -hmm. gives those clients confidence. So my question for you is, what does confidence uh, or what does a client having confidence in me or you look like? What practical stuff happens when the client has confidence in the person they've hired?
2: Yeah, so I think the answer is more what doesn't happen. Um the the if if the process is going smoothly and you're not being, you know, asked to defend everything you say and 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 all that stuff then you can you can uh be reasonably sure that the person who's hired you um it, you know thinks you know what you're doing. And and so in my case if 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 I'm not um getting quibbling over my quote uh, if I'm not getting over briefed, um, if or, or i over directed in the brief, um, if I'm if if my client is not focusing too much on process, um, if they're not demanding to look under the hood too much about. Um, you know the way I'm going to use the information they give me, then that's a, all an indication that um, you know. Or if there's too many milestones, uh, for example, it's like, well, we need to check in every week because you know I think you possibly are stupid, and therefore I need to keep it. You know, <laughs> um, the, it, so it's the absence of 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 things that indicates confidence. If if. Um, if uh, they're not asking all those questions and if they're not demanding to know exactly what you're doing with every minute of your time and uh and they're not uh you know doubting the accuracy of your pricing and and uh, stuff like that then then you can be reasonably sure that they're confident and and the reason for that is the reason you can be reasonably sure is that you have to remember what they went through before they called you Um, you know they didn't get up one morning and say you know let's do a thing with the kitchen Um, this was probably a long process there was probably you know, lots of debate and, and anxiety in the home before they called anybody, uh, you know, they, there was probably, they're probably just as concerned that you're judging them as, as you might be that they're judging you. Right. Um, and, and, you know, they probably committed more money to it than, you know, than, than they're totally comfortable with. And so there's this blend of excitement and anxiety. So if you remember that that is their state of mind, and then consider the fact that they're not questioning everything you say, I'm going to suggest that that equals confidence
1: that that definitely would be confident and the fact is you said this last time they want you to be the answer they do. when you arrive they're just they're hoping yeah. you will have a strong opinion about what they ought to do
2: yeah in in no universe has anyone ever said let's renovate the house and the first thing we're going to do is call an idiot
1: <laughs> okay good point <laughs> It's helpful, I think, for me to hear that you suffer a little bit too, because it's so easy for us to look at the other guy and say, that person over there, she's doing it perfectly. She's really got it going on. But the fact of the matter is more often than I think any of us are aware of, uh, we all struggle with the same problems. So you did have to finally run it through your own paces and come out the other side. And do you think part of why people challenged you less is because it looked like it was corporate? That was my experience. The minute I turned my contract from being about Kimberly Seldon into Kimberly Seldon Design Group, KSDG Inc., um, that corporate vibe, I think, pushed or made clients, I guess, feel that they couldn't... Disagree with me as much? I don't know. Am I right. making sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you know. It's funny. I I think it sort of says that you you're playing a longer game. So in my world, for example, if you're consulting, um, you know, under your own name, the, the the possibility is that 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 you're just between jobs or that you're this is kind of a hobby and you're semi retired or whatever right like it it's it sort of it 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 signals a tentativeness about the business but as soon as you hang a shingle out and it's got a logo and a name and and it's got some profile they kind of know you're you're planning to be around and the, so they sense your own commitment to the project and 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 the, and there's also um, there's I don't know it, somehow it seems to affect the the power exchange a little bit. It's less that they're doing you a favor now. And they're, they're more, I mean, it took me, it took me 20 years to, to have the, to be able to have the courage to say in meetings, people who listen to me make money and people who don't, don't.
1: That's a good line. I'm going to try to figure out how I can use that in my business, but it's not quite the same.
2: Feel free. I'll send you a bill and it will have (laughs) have my logo on it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now for that person who, because I get this a lot, they work at home, they have a home office, maybe their office is in the basement. They will say things like, well, if I act like that, it's not the truth. And what you're saying is don't be ridiculous. It's a virtual world. It doesn't matter that you work out of your office. I mean, you admitted to us that you work from home sometimes in your pajamas. You have onesies. I think I'm pretty sure you have onesies, <laughs> am I right? Yeah that have little mounties on yeah. them. I understand. Yeah. But you don't tell that to clients. You don't lead with that at the client meeting. So why do you think I think it's particularly true for women. Why do you think women feel that they're fraud if they don't immediately tell the client that they work from home and have a home office?
2: I you know, I I, I that question is above my pay grade especially i think when you're talking about the uh, you know about the kinds of people who who are listening to this podcast i just think we we tend to self-handicap because we're afraid of the pressure um it, we're afraid of the pressure that um putting it out there is going to put on us and and that's absolutely human i mean i still experience i i i Constantly feel like I've got one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas because I don't want to be too busy, but I don't want to not be too. I mean, it's just a thing we do, right? Whereas if you if you come out there and say, you know, uh, if you go out in the world and say, okay, well, you know, here's my card and and this is my brand name and this is my big fancy company, you can go to my website. I mean, you're saying you're saying I'm 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 I, I, I'm this guy. I can do this. I'm the best. um right. And that's terrifying,
1: <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. What you just said reminds me of a scene from a movie that I love, Moonstruck. You know in that movie Olympia Dukakis is asking everyone why husbands cheat and nobody's giving her a satisfying answer until the last guy comes in and says, I don't know, maybe they fear death. And she goes, yes, that's it. (laughs) So you just said we self-handicap as a way of protecting ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Hello. I just met a designer yesterday. I was at Kravit Sourcing Fabrics. She came up to me and she said something that I've heard a hundred times and I don't know how to respond to it. And it's this, well, I have projects, uh, but my husband makes a really good living. So I don't really have to worry too, too much, but she was overwhelmed and overworked and was kind of making excuses for why she hasn't gotten her business stuff together. Is that self-handicapping?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, if, if we if we pretend that these aren't people and we just think of them as businesses, and we brought in you know uh, McKinsey or somebody, they'd say, "Well, your problem is you're not charging enough money." If you're if you're if if you on the one hand have no pressure, you know, to earn, and on the other hand, you've got too many, cl- you know, the, then then w- we're going to go ahead and guess that you may not be you may not be using price as a demand management tool, um, you know, to use the marketing jargon. So in in a, in a sense, it is um, that is self handicap. And there are people in this world who are comforted by being busy, who think that if they are busy, they are necessary, and if they are necessary, they are safe. And, and you know, that's a hang up. It um, um, is, uh, it is. yeah, just as you say, it's another form of self-handicapping.
1: Wow. Demand marketing pressure. Did you just say that? Demand marketing pressure. Demand
2: management. D- Pricing d- is a form of demand management.
1: Demand management. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that thing.
2: Well, it, basically, the higher you raise your price, the fewer customers you will get. the The trick is that in any product category, it could be, you know, beer or snow tires. Um, it doesn't have to be designers or branding consultants. That, that the relationship between those two things is not linear. So, you may find that by increasing your rates by fifty percent, you don't see much fall, much drop off, uh, you know, with clients at all. But by increasing them by seventy five, you might see, you know. Two-thirds of them drop off. I mean, so there's the, the, this concept called elasticity that we don't really know for sure. Um, so so you use that tool carefully. But, but the chances are that if you're running off your feet and you're not making enough money, you're not charging enough. Or, or to put it more positively, if you're running off your feet and you're not making enough money, it means you are worth more than you thought you were.
1: Right. Right. The best time to raise your fee is when you're super busy. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's good. A lot of people are afraid to raise their fee because the fear is I'll never work again. But my experience has been the higher the fee goes, the better clients I get, not meaning nicer people or you know rich richer people are better people, but meaning that the clients I get tend to listen to me. Right. They tend to take my advice. I'm not arguing with them and second guessing myself.
2: Yeah, and I, I think it goes it goes back a little bit to the theme we talked about earlier uh, about about how we we are not the best judges of our value of our own value, um, and, you know, and, and this really it you know the rubber really kind of hits the road when we're talking about fees. Um, in our business, we charge by the day rather than by the hour, and um, in the in the few years since the uh, since we opened our practice, you know, my my rate has gone up by fifty percent, and I've never had anybody squawk at all. In fact, I have a suspicion that my larger corporate clients um, are reassured by that.
1: They're reassured by that because it's uh, an indication that you have the chops to handle their project, right? Yes. So conversely, a too low fee might trigger insecurity in your client,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. Just just as you know, showing up you know, badly dressed in a dirty old car would.
1: Yes. If, everybody go get a new car. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce, for permission. Everyone's getting a new car. What is if it? only I were Oprah. <laughs> That's right. I'd be sending you a car right now. <laughs> So practically speaking, they want me to be the answer, but how does that translate into how I should behave? So for example, when I first started, I used to give them five, six, seven options because I thought that made them aware of how smart I was and how brilliant I was. And I could make anything work, but I could see the look on their face was just sheer terror. Like they didn't know how to narrow down so many options. So as part of they want me to be the answer delivering on that. The fact that I now give them one choice or two choices.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think the, the, the decision about how many options to present them kind of comes at the end of a, of a process that, you know, and if you're asking yourself that question, then, then you may already have, have, you know, screwed up as it were. Um, Oh, I screw <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much every day. <laughs> do
1: you have time? So, do you so, have alcohol? I,
2: I think it was. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. In the car. Um, no, that's not true.
1: Don't, oh, wow. Don't say don't that. Don't do that. That's not good. Don't do that at home, kids. Um, no, not so much honesty. No, <laughs> We have to dial it back a little.
2: I really think, I mean, I don't want to sort of overstress this, but I think it's important to act like the answer. If they hope you're the answer, then act like the answer. And and so I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. We had a, an engagement. Last year, in which there was another consultant involved, uh, who I won't name or describe, but we'll call him Sad Consultant, and (laughs) he, so he, as I do, worked from a home office, and he had a pretty sterling resume for what he did, but he he sort of showed up wearing like these rumpled Dockers and and a you know plaid shirt, and and he had this his, his his. laptop was, you know, sort of not current and it was in this banged up bag. And he seemed to take some pride in being kind of like the Columbo of consultants. Um, (laughs) and, and he, and his demeanor was sort of, I think, I think he was, he acted sort of bored. I've seen this all a million times. Um, don't worry, I've got the answer here in my sad, banged up little computer bag and and um i think my car keys are somewhere here in my rumpled old dockers and you, you know like it was just a the theater of his being there was not confidence inspiring and um and so as a result and and it got worse when he started to develop presentation materials you know the 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 PowerPoint presentations looked like uh, Mm -hmm. you know a train wreck and and um, and they were sort of busy and ugly and weird colors and you know none of these things individually was damaging Um, and we could say that this is all superficial and it doesn't matter but it does matter Um, the week uh, that you and I are recording this not to get political but you may recall that there was a kerfuffle last week about the First Lady of the United States heading to Texas to see the devastation and that hurricane and getting on Air Force One in those um, Manolo Blahniks. Those heels. So practically speaking, who cares? Mm -hmm. Um, But everyone decided that meant something and they judged her according to what they thought it meant. Well, I'm going to tell you that um, that that's how the whole world works right. and so so it's super important that every step along the way you act like the answer be disciplined, have a notepad you know have an agenda for the meeting. we're going to cover five things today you know the the and here's the well we'll be back to you on the fur on the first with this and on the 15th with that um, each of these things, even though they don't bear directly on the quality of the work, says to the person who's hired you um, uh, I'm on this. Don't worry. Uh, I'm a pro. I've done this a thousand times. It's it's uh, everything is under control. And the result of a process that both looks disciplined and is disciplined is that when you bring them the answer, they're more likely to say, "Of course, that's the answer." know mm-hmm. um, when I when I uh, ran my agency, we we made a real discipline of this, and the result was that very often, um, combined with a lot of strategic effort, we would go and present one thing to clients. Um and it would be the first thing that we presented and they would buy it. Yeah. Um, and that's got a lot to do with how confident they were when the meeting began. So
1: what are some other things then we can do to boost ourselves into a better, stronger version of ourselves? Are there practical <laughs> things that we should all be thinking about?
2: Yeah, I think so I think that, that um process is a long term, it's a lifelong commitment. Um, you know, like your uh, yoga thing it's not um i'm going to go do this thing tomorrow and then that'll you know that'll solve it it's a it's a way of being um, i have this uh little cartoon um that uh, i just love uh, it's a it's a picture of a of a guy in a meeting um sitting and a bunch of people sitting around a boardroom table and they're all wearing business attire except he's wearing a batman suit and the caption is um, dress for the job you want and uh, i relate <laughs> to this because i wish I was Batman but also I just love the audacity of it and I think so I think that's a big part of the answer is to you know know that you have more license than you think and and kind of um you know just you know, I don't want to say fake it till you make it uh, which is an expression that my uh, beloved coach used to use a lot but I don't um it, it's not a me thing but it but it's not a act bat, as if pri- exactly yeah. So then, then there's, there's sort of three pieces of advice that I give young people in our business, um, the, which if they follow, I think results in uh, having that kind of gravity and presence and credibility. Um, that uh, that's what that I think is what you're talking about. And the three things are these: the, the, first of all, never stop trying to get better. Um, it's uh, you should <laughs> that when the day comes that you don't think you need training anymore, um, then you might you know consider an alternative. Uh, you know, career because you're you're toast. Um, you know, find me a pilot, for example, who thinks he doesn't need uh, mm-hmm. you know any more training. So, so the first thing is keep getting better. Um, the second thing is remember that the work you do it has a short life. Now, this is truer for me than it would be for you or your listeners. But but the fact is that you know, as the years have gone by, um, very few people remember the. The the ads we did, um, but they remember what it was like to work with us, and um, that's what endures, and that's why the phone keeps ringing ten and twenty and thirty years later is because of what you were like. Um, so so remember that the experience has to be positive, and then remember that your network that is the the most important garden to tend. Um, and then the third piece of advice is remember your stories. Um, the the there's a bad habit in my industry of people believing that every new project is a blank sheet of paper and that they're doing a better job if they just pretend that they don't know anything. Um, and, wh- whereas in fact, if you can say to a client, you know, I've seen this before and here's what we did and here's what we learned and here's how we now do it. Um, that's super reassuring to them and it it authenticates your expertise. If, if you've done a hundred Homes, or you've done a hundred brands, and you're able to, to, and you have encyclopedic knowledge of that of that work and what it taught you, and you can use that information to help sell your thinking to a new. You you have to trust that that your client is going to think that's that's fantastic. That's what they're paying for. That's why they're paying the big bucks because you've done this before and you don't fail.
1: And the funny thing is, most creative people, certainly myself, I definitely remember the painful experiences (laughs) where we tried to do X. And it did not work. And so this is what we learned. And so this is what we're going to try for you now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. Really, really good advice. We do like to end every episode with a little design intervention, let's call it. Hmm. And it can be something you're excited about in business. It could be a TV show you saw and you love the sets. It could be a great you know album that you're listening to um it could be almost anything you think might interest interior design professionals who are listening attentively
2: right <laughs> um well obviously this is not something that I have any expertise in but I have we did just finish watching a TV series um that uh I thought was kind of cool from a design perspective it was called uh vinyl and it's on HBO and I guess it was killed after one season um but it's about the record industry in New York in the 1970s and um the thing that I found because I can sort of remember the 1970s <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if, if uh if I can put it that way um and I just thought whoever did the production design on this thing um really did their homework and kind of got it because it it didn't end up coming across as some kind of you know museum of um uh you know things people saw in magazines but it 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 felt like someone had done this who had been there it felt very real apart from the cars, which is a particular um, raw nerve for me I can't understand why people don't see what your cars were made before they put them in TV shows. But other than that, um, the, the, the clothing and, the, and, the, and the, the, the sort of design of the office spaces and other spaces were just were just so perfect for the period and perfect for the characters that were trying. You know, the show is pretty rowdy and a bit naughty in parts, so you got to be ready for that. Um, but uh, we, quite ready, <laughs> <laughs> we, we quite enjoyed it. I'm ready,
0: I'm
2: ready. We quite enjoyed it. And as I said, I thought the production design was just stellar.
1: That would be so fun. I'm going to go check that out because mm-hmm. I remember the 70s, I graduated. From high school in 1979, so those were my years, the formative
2: years. That's it. Is there
1: a rec room somewhere
2: in the show? Or I don't remember that there paneling? was a rec room. They do make they do visit L.A. though. You might at one point in in in, uh, in one episode, and you might enjoy that. They they find themselves in a house in Malibu, which I doubt has changed much. <laughs> yeah, probably not.
1: Do you have a takeaway? from your worst client ever. (laughs) Do you know who your worst client ever was?
2: Um, And there'd be a couple of candidates. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so this is going to sound kind of brutal, but um, I think one thing that we share is that we sell our opinions. And the problem with opinions is that everybody's got one. In a in a sane world, um, that being the case, the opinion that would carry the most weight would be the one with the most experience behind it. Um, and so, you know, in in my work, uh, very often, if I'm sitting in a in a room full of people and i'm sharing an opinion about something um i'll you know at at this point in my career i'm probably the most senior person there i expect i expect the people to listen um they don't have to take the advice that is absolutely their sovereign right not to do but they have to listen um and uh i have found that when that does not happen um, the entire relationship is doomed and beyond salvation. <laughs> you know, it's not always easy to sort of get out of it. But if, but if, if early in a relationship, I find people you know are interrupting me, shutting me down, disagreeing with me, um, dismissing me, there is no way on this green earth that this relationship is going to heal and become productive.
1: Wow, well, you know what? I just recently had someone share with me that she, um, her client, was balking at the fact that she charges an hourly rate. But also um, shares her discount when she purchases goods and services with a client. So, in other words, if, if uh, she gets 20% off on a chair, the client saves 10%, she keeps 10%. He didn't think that was fair. He said that was double dipping. So, she explained at the consultation why she does that. It's her business model, it's non negotiable. Let's do this thing. And then again at the presentation, he brought it up and he was very aggressive about it. So, right then and there, exactly what you said, she probably needed to get herself out of that situation with that client before ordering a bunch of furniture and being stuck.
2: Yeah. I mean, from what you told me, it seems highly unlikely this guy was going to turn into a pussycat after the contract was signed.
1: Have you ever had a client turn into a pussycat when you push back a little bit?
2: Um, yes. If it's just a question of pushing back, I mean, that can be a real, um, that can be a great moment. Uh, you know, if, if it, it, I think, I think men are particularly bad for this where they'll kind of circle each other, like, you know, dogs in a junkyard, um, and kind of test. And, uh, you know, if you get to a point where, you know, guy A says, yeah, well, I don't think you know, I don't, I don't agree. I don't think you should do that. I won't accept those terms. And guy B says, oh yeah, well, if you don't accept those terms, then I'm out of here. And guy A says, okay, okay. Uh, I hear you. Then they're pals forever. It's sort of, it can work out like that. If it's not too dramatic or not too fundamental to the project, if you have a little contretemps at the beginning and it, and it, and it works out, um, then, then it's, um, it's like, um, the beginning of a beautiful friendship, as they said in Casablanca.
1: Yeah, so it really is okay to hold your ground sometimes and just say, experience has shown me that this is the better way to do this. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, conversely, your favorite clients, the best clients you've ever had, and don't use me, that's just silly, <laughs> <laughs> but your favorite clients, what lessons have you learned from those clients?
2: Yeah so the the person that I'm thinking of um was actually sort of a huge client um and we worked with him for many many years and he sensed in me that I had a sort of overdeveloped sense of responsibility, I was, that I was you know, sort of a classic firstborn child, you know, Boy Scout kind of, he picked this up and his way of dealing with me was to give me complete freedom and, um, and you know, to kind of to get things done the way I wanted to get them done. All I had to do was sell him the answer and then he'd say, well, off you go. I mean, we would shoot TV commercials and he wouldn't even show up. Uh, that is not a strategy that he used with anybody else, and it isn 't a strategy that would work on anybody else, but me it kept me awake at night. I was so pressured by his expectations um, of me and his trust in me that I uh, outperformed um, you know kind of again and again. I loved him for that, and i I still don 't have the instincts that it takes to read people that way, but I really do try because it was so profoundly effective.
1: Do you have red flags? Like, can you think of three red flags as you're interviewing or they're interviewing you, a potential client, three things that make you go, I
2: don't think so? Well, you know, the, the, the positioning, the definition of positioning I gave you earlier was kind of sort of simplified for the. Purpose of this conversation, but it, it in marketing terms, it has a it, it really asks uh, companies to make some tough commitments about target market and and um, and differentiation, and I find that if um, if a if a a client is, uh, is unwilling to have that conversation if they want to sort of stay flexible and stay loose and, you know, chase the business wherever it may go. Um, the sales guys will take care of this. Um, then, then they're not ever going to get it. Um, and that's cool. They can run their business the way they want to, but it isn't going to make any sense for them to pay me to be there and watch them do it. Um, so, so that, that kind of, you know that that commitment um, is is really the almost the most for me, anyway, the most foolproof test of whether we're going to get along,
1: ok, as usual, Bruce, I feel like I have to go back and listen to this episode three or four times uh, in order to get all of the knowledge that you've shared and to figure out how to apply it in my life. So thank you. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, you're welcome.
0: business of design, we know it takes more than hard work and talent to successfully run a professional design firm. There are proven business strategies that can solve your immediate business challenges and transform your life. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to more than 100 video courses, plus access to Kimberly Selden as your mentor and guide. Unlike coaching, which can take years to produce tangible results, BOD is a fast track, to immediate results for independent interior designers, decorators, architects, stagers, and landscapers just like you. Monthly membership is only $67.50. Annual members save two months and have access to Kimberly's contracts. What are you waiting for? Together, we will achieve extraordinary results. Start today.